I'm Fred McClymans, he's Howard Hecht, and you are listening to The Coil. On today's edition of The Coil, we're talking about The Coil. We've done 14 episodes or editions, depending upon whether you're talking with me or with my co-host Howard, of The Coil. And in reflecting back, we've realized we've learned quite a bit about uh, the production of content and about The Coil and what it was that we were actually doing here. Howard? It's true, Fred. With each Editiusode, we really tend to... Yeah, I had to do that because he took it away from me. Editiusode, yes, I had to do that. Um, With each Editiusode, we we tend to actually go through tremendous learning curves in a very, very, very short time. And, you know, I, I both look forward to and dread each one. Well, I can say I look forward to them. I'm not quite sure I dread at this point. The, the, but it's, it's the dreaditing. It's the dreaditing that I The edit. dreaditing, Oh, yes. the editing, yes. The yes, dreaditing. That's, that's... yes. So since we started The Coil, um, we've changed quite a bit both in our approach to The Coil and in the technology that we use. The first Coil that we did was you know, as live as live could be. Uh, we set ourselves up in a situation where it was you know, stand up and, and perform or die. Howard, how did that go? We died, um, very simply. Uh, <laughs> no, no, we, no, no, we, we didn't really. But, we but a great edition of the coil with Cheryl, Cheryl Schultz. Schultz. Yes, yes. But the funniest thing was, of course, we, if you recall, we we pre, we actually rehearsed. You know, I always wonder how many people rehearse. You know, you hear a lot of podcasts, you hear a lot of radio where people come on and they go, uh, so like I'm on the radio now, and well, we actually rehearsed and we rehearsed for weeks, and we we were really very well prepared except for the major interesting audio failure that we had. Literally, when the show went live, um, I received a feedback loop of every every sound input from all three speakers on about a 5, 10, and 15 second delay in my ear at once. So I couldn't hear what Fred was saying. I couldn't hear what Cheryl was saying. I was basically reading Fred's lips on a Google Hangout window that we had in silent mode. So... There are two really good points uh, coming out of that uh, that thought there. The first is we do record where we can actually see each other. And that's you know sort of lesson number one that we learned very early on. In fact, I've been doing that uh, in, in podcasts and uh, in, uh, in content creation now for a while. I like to be able to see the person that I, I'm interacting with. And it, it lends a bit of um, you know, a conversational uh, experience. And it, it produces a much more relaxed uh, discussion. So so that's great. But the second thing is, as Howard mentioned, we had rehearsed and walked through not necessarily what we were going to say, but the format. The one thing that we really hadn't anticipated uh, was how, in this case I have to mention it, Blog Talk Radio would actually perform with all of our equipment once we went live. So we had done several tests with Blog Talk Radio and we understood how to work the system. Uh, it wasn't until we actually connected in uh, through the uh, the dial-in mechanism and flipped the switch that we realized we had a technical issue. It was interesting, to say the least. But, Howard, we did put on a very good edition of The Coil. Cheryl was a phenomenal guest. Yes, she was. About, yes, she was. Uh, talking about uh, female entrepreneurs and women in business. It was, uh, it was a brilliant way to launch off the podcast series. Hey, we had a lot of listeners, and people have uh, loved that show, so absolutely it was. So 
recently we had uh, a guest on the coil, Tom Maxwell, um, former front man of the uh, Squirrel Nut Zippers. We had an extended conversation with Tom. Now, it's worth pointing out that we've been doing the show in a mix of live and in pre-recorded uh, editions. One of the things that we did after the, uh, the first edition of the coil was we realized there was some value to refining what we were doing. We kept on doing it live, where literally at X o'clock, we would go live, we'd have ourselves, we'd have our guest, we'd have the intro music, the stabs, everything all put together. And it did work very well. But we started to run into some issues with guests not necessarily showing up on exactly the time that we thought they would. Uh, which, uh, rather than turn that into a bug, we turned it into a feature. And we started to drift more into pre-recording our guests and for a while there, we actually did the coil where we would have, you know, ourselves live on the coil, you know, at seven o'clock every Monday night. And our interview would be pre-recorded that we would then insert. Howard, how did that work? That did not work as well as we had hoped. Uh, unfortunately, um, we had a lot of issues with that, including guest access. But let's face it, again, it comes down to our friends at Blog Talk Radio um, even though we may have recorded these things in a reasonable rate and a reasonable technology, they actually stream at about 11 kilobytes a second in mono. And some of our recordings just did not sound like humans. No, in, in fact, that took me back to, uh, you know, my, you know, gosh, let's say uh, late elementary school, early middle school days with a uh, little tiny Panasonic transistor radio uh, quality. So we learned from that, though, and we moved on to the point where we got more comfortable with the technology, and we started actually pre-recording entire editions of the coil. And there was a great benefit that came from that, and that was access to content that we really hadn't anticipated. And that kind of leads me up to uh, Tom Maxwell. Uh, Tom was one of those guests that we did a phenomenal extended interview with. We sat down, we had some conversations. We went through all the normal interview process that we would normally go through with a guest. We just never stopped. We just kept recording and we let the conversation go where it would. And it went into some very interesting areas, didn't it? It absolutely did. Um, effectively, we ended up having a, a long interview with Tom and then we had about an hour conversation about music and our personal histories in music. And of course, as you can imagine, Tom's was pretty impressive. But Fred and I are both uh, both have spent a lot of time in music, so it was it was just one of those great conversations. It very much reminded me of a great dorm room conversation, which is something that happened before there was texting, kids. <laughs> a dorm room conversation. It did. It did. It had that. It had that vibe. It had that vibe. See, I'm thinking back uh, more along the lines, and I'm going to date myself here tremendously, but some of the interview segments that would be broadcast on the uh, BBC's King Biscuit Flower Hour. Ooh, okay. Uh, you're, well, you're quite a bit older than I am, so I'd... Wait, um... <laughs> see, that was the time when it was good to watch Fred's face. I got to see him. His, his shocked reaction. It was just Fred's birthday, so he's feeling it a little bit, but... Feeling it every... <laughs> <laughs> This is a this is one of those edit moments. No, uh, no, no. Feeling it, feeling it, and enjoying every bit of the years that I have been around. No, no, that's got to be included. That's got to be included. 
<laughs> well, if you're looking for me to say, yes, uh, it's been 51 years, it has been 51 years, 51 great years, and I'm looking forward to another 51. And I think you'll get them. Fair enough. When we come back, we'll actually be looking at some of the interview with Tom Maxwell, what got left on the cutting room floor. That's when we come back on The Coil. On this segment of today's Coil, we're going to take a look and a listen at some of the pieces that came out of our extended interview with Tom Maxwell, former frontman of the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Howard, we had a great conversation with Tom Maxwell that went well beyond the norm. It did, Fred. We actually spoke for almost two hours. Now, most of our interviews run about 15 to 30 minutes. Um, what was it about Tom that, in your mind, was, was compelling? Look, Tom has got a tremendous sense of music, not just of his own, but of music history. And it was something that was fascinating to talk to him. And it was just, um, I don't know, it was, it was one of those great conversations that you don't normally get to have, that we don't normally have the time to have these days. A great conversation about music. Um, I've had some of them with you, but quite honestly, the last one I remember, the last lengthy conversation was back in the 90s. So it's that kind of thing we don't have time to have anymore. So I think that was why it was so enjoyable. So one of the, uh, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, and, and a question that many people have asked us is, you know, why start the coil? You know, why are you, uh, why are you podcasting? Why are you creating a radio show? Why are you doing what you're doing? And I think for, for both of us, it's simply something that we, we enjoy doing. Yeah, and I think in some ways it's something that we had to do. And I think now, like, the minute you decide when you're 22, like I did, uh, when you finally realize, you finally come to some sort of, you know, some sort of realization or acceptance that you are a musician and that it's okay to be a musician, it's who you are, that you don't really have a choice in the matter, and you're high on trucker speed in a parking lot in Wilmington, for example, and you're looking at the black, empty bowl of the sky, and you realize that that's okay, then at some point in the future, then you will just be charged with a $15,000 debt to your, you know, account. Because you will immediately owe somebody a lot of money. There, there you <laughs> because go. Because you'll have to pay to play. It's called Dare to Create for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you see me laughing, I'm laughing to keep from crying. One of the benefits of going from a live show to a pre-recorded show was our ability to edit, the freedom to edit. It didn't mean that we stopped doing live events. In fact, Howard, we just did one in Calgary. Yes, we did. A very live event. One hour live radio. With an audience. No With less. an audience. A fairly good sized audience. But there are some interesting things that happen when you do move from a live version to a produced version, and there's a fine line you have to walk there. It's true, it's true. There are times that I think we, uh, we over-edit ourselves, and there are times that uh, obviously we're pressed for time and uh, we do it and in, in repent in, uh, in leisure. Tom had some thoughts on that subject. I mean, uh, w w when have we ever gone to being musicians who are in complete control and who have mastered their instruments? I mean, I think the point can be argued that with the old bottleneck, uh, the cream could conceivably rise to the top and you had people like Django Reinhardt, who was an absolute master of his instrument. Or, moreover, moreover, you had a technology that could only allow Django Reinhardt and his band of 
fantastic musicians to record every take live, so they're actually people playing in a room. Let me let me get to the sort of uh, the heart of one of my pet peeves, if you will, fellas, if you have the time. Sure. Plenty okay. of time. Okay, back in the day, in the 20s and the 30s and the early days of recording, you may have had a microphone. In the 20s, at some point, you had an electronic microphone. Before that, you had giant horns that people had to sing into in the kind of a shouty way. But you could only record things live. Multi-track recording, as we know it, didn't come around until the 1950s, where at some point, all of a sudden, you've got Chet Baker singing and playing the trumpet at the same time, which was, which was very exciting for people who like Chet Baker like I do. But so the premium, it was necessary for the band or the artist to really get their stuff right. They had to sing in tune, they had to perform correctly. You're talking about, say, with Duke Ellington's 1940 band, you're talking about 15 to 20 pieces of, of musicians who have got their dynamics and their entrances and their attacks down exactly right. And it's phenomenal. Why? Because you've got, what, two, maybe four microphones recording the entire unit and it's being cut onto a lathe as it's being recorded, it's not even going to tape. You blow the tape, you throw away the, uh, the acetate, and you start all over again. And then at some point we get, thanks to, um, uh, uh, to Les Paul, we, yep. get multi, we get multi-track recording. And this is, this is great. This saves time. This is really cool. But what happens? The engineers start to take over. The engineers start to gain control. And so by the 1970s, with disco music, you had guys recording each separate piece of the drum kit. You had a track for bass drum, you had a track for hi-hat, and you had a track for snare drum. Even though they were recording to tape and all this analog gear, they wanted it to be so clinical and so controlled that they would record things separately and individually. Now, what used to be called ambient sound, that is to say, what is coming in through the microphone, uh, where the person who's standing closer to the microphone, say with a quieter instrument like their voice or an acoustic guitar or something, would sound more direct, and someone farther away from the microphone, like someone playing a trumpet, would, would sound farther away, and they would have more room sound on their instrument. But anything coming into the microphone would be ambient sound. The engineers started to call it bleed through. <laughs> and they would say, oh, we've got drum bleed this does not sound, this is not pleasant. This does not sound pleasant. Ultimately, what you got was guys recording their individual parts by themselves in a room, uh, like the bass player with a pair of headphones on, recording his bass part, sometimes plugged directly into the board, not even running through an amp, and not performing with his bandmates. And now what you're getting is a lot of stuff that's being done to a click track, which is a kind of uh, of a steady uh, beat that's put through people's headphones so everybody can play at the same time. Because for the express purpose of if you're not going to be performing together, then everybody needs to play at the same tempo. One of the things that was so great about the Beatles was that they always recorded the heart of whatever song they were performing live. They always recorded it live. And then they would dump all kinds of crazy stuff on there. Uh, and anybody who wants to preserve an organic, breathing performance uh, need not be constrained by digital technology to do so. As we've made the shift from a live production on Blog Talk Radio to a more edited 
uh, or pre-recorded uh, edition of The Coil, now available on SoundCloud, which, Howard, I have to say, was a great step up. I do love the SoundCloud. I do love the fact that we have finally good audio quality again. I, I do indeed, and I'm, I'm very thankful to the people at SoundCloud for approving us and getting us into their program. Yes, yes, making us one of the beta testers of their podcast uh, program, which, which I'm very pleased that they saw fit to do. So along the way, the way we've created our content has uh, it's changed a bit. We've become more comfortable with technology and more comfortable with the whole creation and edit and publish process that we've moved through. And in a way, that's kind of shaped some of the decisions we've made about the content of our show. Um, that was very lengthy. That was the 13-minute answer that you guys were so afraid of. Yeah, but it was good stuff. <laughs> okay. And besides, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll make it sound like you, you pledge your allegiance to digital because we're just going to edit out a few, you know, key words. And just, and just yeah, cut it down we'll, to we'll I, love, ins- I love digital. Exactly. Yeah, we will insert the appropriate questions in the track as needed. As needed. A side effect of living in the digital age is that you very rarely hear the phrase, oh, that Bill Shakespeare. I thought you meant the other Bill Shakespeare. You know, the one who prints playbills down in the village of Kent. Today, however, that can happen quite easily as our digital footprint runs into the inevitable reality of 21st century population. There is no 100% uniqueness when it comes to digital. An artist's digital presence is probably the most important aspect of, of an outbound reach. And I couldn't help but notice that yours is somewhat schizophrenic. You seem to have been digitally combined on Google with Tom Maxwell of Knives Out and Hell Yeah. Have you ever sat down with him or talked to him and tried to determine who is the real Tom Maxwell? I don't think that's necessary, Howard, since I created him. You know, being a solipsist, <laughs> I, I, he's fully under sort of my command, like just like the coins that I put into a Coke machine turn into a can of Coke. He's an automaton. Is that what you're saying? No, he's he's more of a he's more of um you know I would love to think of the word uh, the sort of paranormal term uh, when an entity is created through intent. There's a story about a uh, these people that got together and they were talking about seances and stuff and they were wondering whether or not these things were actually actually happened and they said well we're going to create a, an entity we're going to call him George or whatever it is and then. Uh, George showed up, the, the guy that they just said that they were going to create. And it's called Tulpa, T-U-L-P-A. Hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, Tom Maxwell is a Tulpa. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure which one, though. Anyway, I think the only thing that's really an impediment to me reaching out to him is not the fact that we play different kinds of music, but that I've seen pictures of him and he he wears a leather hat, like a leather cowboy hat. So that's that's a bit of a of a bar, I think. I, I could see for me. That. I could see yeah. that. I, I, I could see that. I was just surprised when I, I, you know, his picture showed up and that he was in the zippers. I was kind of surprised by. Wait, that. no, no. <laughs> I wish. I it, wish he was. It says so on on the front page of the Google search. Does it really? That's it really, fantastic. You know, that's just that's like Wonder Twin powers. I'm telling you, you know, you, you, know, you really have done a miraculous thing. I, I have through complete inaction, which is really. My goal in life is to just is to just continue to fail upwards. Well, and, and also what I like is your ability to dynamically offload psychic scars, deep psychic scars, onto another entity of your own creation. I mean, oh, you know, I mean, what can I say? That is impressive. It's that, called projection. That it's is called rock projection. Star. That is yeah. rock star. I'm just amazed that your entire life can be 
downgraded to one little moment of Google search? Uh, well, uh, don't look at me. <laughs> look at Howard. Howard. Howard doesn't have a lot of time. You know, he's busy buying slate suits. I, I uh, you know. for his profile picture. I mean, what can what can I say? It's the only one I own. Anyway, <laughs> and it, that's it was a rental. Okay, in the right, digital there, world. It was a rental. Fine, <laughs> I admit it. On this segment of today's coil, it's turntables where we let Tom Maxwell ask a question of Howard and me. Since both you guys uh, have seen a lot of music. What was the one standout show for you? Wow. The, 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 the watershed, the turning point, the before and after. You know, um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, there have been so many turning points when you, you hear a band, you see something or something happens, and it, it just fundamentally changes the way you, you listen to music, the way you look at music, the way you experience it. Um, I think one of the... Uh, in fact, there were two that, that really stood out for me um, uh, early on. Um, one was uh, going up to uh, Plattsburgh, New York, and seeing Buddy Rich put on a uh. drum clinic and then a performance with his band. And at, at that point, uh, I was just really trying to get comfortable you know, in the kit, and he just blew me away. Oh, what he was shit. able to do uh, you know, at that age... Um, the the perfection, but at the same time, still taking that risk and you know throwing something in there that it didn't always work all the time, and when it didn't, he still made it work. Mm -hmm. um, but his um, just his his sheer um, his willpower, his dedication, and the fact that the guy played nonstop. You know, he he was one of those guys that you know he just he sat out there and he just didn't stop. Uh, and at the end you had this um, this feeling that as exhausted as he was, he could sit down and go for another five hours and would love every minute of it. Um, but there were so many things about uh, about meeting him that, that were, that were eye-opening in many ways. Um, the second event was actually an Eric Clapton concert. Um, uh, not too long after that, um, it was at the, uh, the Syracuse War Memorial and uh, Eric Clapton was the, uh, the build band. And, uh, at that point, uh, I got a, a ticket from a friend of a friend of a friend, and we show up at the show, and I don't even know who the opening act is. And uh, this band comes out, and they're sitting there, and they're playing, and they're just, they're hitting it. I mean, these guys are just on. And they play for about 20 minutes, pure instrumental. And, uh, you know, I'm like, this is so familiar. I, I recognize the sound, I, but I couldn't quite place it. And then out of the corner of the stage, uh, somebody comes out, and they put down a little stool in the middle of the stage. They walk back and out comes Muddy Waters. And it takes Muddy Waters about 20 minutes to walk from one side of the stage to the center of the stage and sit down. And he's just dancing all the way. And the look uh. on his face is just pure joy. He's in his element. He's into the music. He's into the crowd. He's just into being himself and enjoying that. And it was a beautiful thing to see. For him to come out and, uh, and then play uh, was, was amazing. Then Eric Clapton comes out, and you see him in the background playing with the band before his set. And uh, it, was, uh, it was an amazing event. That was a turning point for me. That sounds really, really beautiful. Howard? Well, um, turning point would have gone back to 1976, when I had the good fortune in 
in the city of New York of seeing The Who with Keith Moon. You know, I'd, I'd like The Who. One of my very first, the one of the very first 345s that I owned was Pinball Wizard when I was six years old. Seeing The Who was something I'd always want to do, but I, I just never imagined that they would be so explosive live. I, I, I'd never seen anyone with that intensity, and I'd never been to a show where everybody was on their feet for the entire almost three-hour set. It was the... It was sort of the ultimate true rock concert of that era. And you just, you know, there, there was nothing to do but just be totally in awe of, of everything that happened, you know, during during the show. But a watershed moment for me was something that was a little bit different and and not sort of that, not in the positive, but in something that, that kind of struck me to this day. It's just sort of like this in, interesting little painful stab. There was this amazing dive bar in New Jersey where quite near where I grew up it was called Alexander's and it was it held about 300 people it was really a dive what was interesting is every few months or so they would book a, an amazing quality national act and I, I actually had, had a chance to see the Ramones there which was fantastic I went to see this would have been probably in 79 I think it was George Thorogood yeah Oh, right. He's right out of the box. Yeah, yeah. Right out of yeah. the box. And, you know, you know, people were, were loving it. And what really got me excited was Link Ray was opening for George oh, Thorogood. Hell yeah. So, you know, Link Ray. I'm, I'm actually yeah. going to get. I didn't know Link Ray was still alive and I'm going to get to see him. <laughs> I mean, I was excited. Yeah. They booed Link Ray off the stage. Oh, please. Oh. How is that possible? I, and that's and that's and and I was and that's what I mean. It was a watershed moment because I I it, it just sort of galvanized the flavor of the month club to me permanently. I recognized it. I saw it. Yeah, it's always been with us. I mean, I, you know, I I guess I'd seen it before. I'd seen it when 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 Etta James got booed leading off for the Stones in '78. Saw Good that. Lord. Oh my God. Saw that, but. But this was, you know, that was just intermittent. This was, he really was booed off the stage. And it was just something that, you know, it stuck with me. That one, that one just really, to this day, I, I just think of that. And I just, I just, it's sort of, you know, one of the most personal experiences I've had with somebody, you know, just screwing with, with history, if you will. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. I'm afraid I'm not too surprised, though, by it. You know, Hendrix went on tour with the Monkees in 68, and I don't think he was very well received. <laughs> you know, I don't think he, he may not have been booed off the stage, but it, was a, it wasn't the most comfortable bill. That was great to be able to answer Tom's question about, about live music and, and the greatest live act we ever saw. And, you know, of course, what we did was we returned the tables back on Tom and wanted to know what his favorite was. And what we got was something that we didn't expect. We got the one that got away. Tom's uh, story about the Pixies and the concert that never was. Uh, you, you said earlier, Howard, that you went to see basically everything you possibly could. And yes. I, 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 I generally stay at home. You know, I, I, I have the bands that some people tried to drag me to. <laughs> so that would have been, let's say, the Pixies in Raleigh in 1988. 
and, and uh, despite my guitar player's pleadings about a hot girl bass player, who now I have a lifelong crush on. Oh, so you, you know, you, wow, okay. I did not go. Yeah. No, no, finger wagging, clucking. It's I'm, terrible. It, I'm, 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 I'm doing I'm sorry. it. Sorry. I'm sorry. I blew it. And you and you regret it to this day, which is good, which is appropriate. I genuinely regret it. I really, really do. It could never be as good, though, as I imagined it was. Right? It was better. It was better. <laughs> <laughs> so she was looking I, for you. I didn't want to tell oh, you that. Stop but. it. Okay, stop it. <laughs> Many thanks to my co-host, Howard Heck, and our guest, Tom Maxwell. We hope you've enjoyed today's edition of The Coil, a very special edition of The Coil. We hope you'll join us next week. In the meantime, for more information about The Coil, please go to thecoilradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at The Coil Radio, and you can find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash thecoil. <laughs>